Psalm chapter 42. You guys know this Travis Green, Green song, God is Intentional? You know that song? Can you sing it? All things are working for my good. You know that? Because he's intentional. That's it. He's intentional. Sing it with me. All things. All things are working for my good. Because he's intentional. Never failing. Never failing. Come on. All things. Things are working for my good. Come on, sing it out. Because he's intentional, never failing. Never failing. All things are working for my good. Because he's intentional, never failing. Amen. That leads us into this psalm right here, all right? Psalm chapter 42 and 43. I want to focus on a couple verses in Psalm chapter 42 this morning. Direct your attention to verse 5. Or, uh, let's start with verse 6. Verse 6 through the end of Psalm 42. It reads this, And my God, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By, the, by day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Father, we ask that as we come into this text, that you will strengthen us weary people. I pray that you will use myself and all of my frailties and weaknesses to speak your powerful truth over your people. And I pray that we will know that all things work together for our good and that you are indeed intentional. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Johnny Erickson Tata was a young, vibrant, active teenager who loved horses and swimming. Yet everything changed during the summer of 1967 when Johnny jumped off a... Uh, dock into a shallow lake and broke her neck and was paralyzed from the neck down. She now lay in a hospital bed and has fallen into utter depression, suicidal despair. A young teenager who's trying to wrap her mind around the fact that she will never again use her hands and her legs. All things work together for good. How can anything good come out of that kind of despair? How can anything good come out of that kind of depression? I want to talk to you this morning on this theme, strange gift, a strange gift. I want to begin with this question. Is God always for your good? I want, to, I want that question to float around your mind this morning as we study His 
word. And let's not be too quick to answer what we know to be true, but let's really let that sit on us. Is God always for your good, even during times of despair and depression? Is he always for your good? Look at verse 6 in chapter 42. Verse 6, he says, My God, which is part of the previous refrain, then he begins a new thought. He says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. Now, the whole like mountains and lands of Jordan, Hermon, we're going to get to that later. But just look at these first two lines in verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. Let me read that again. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. I was reading this with our kids over the dinner table this past week, and I asked them, what do you think those, those two lines, what is that saying, what does that mean? And so they came up with various answers, such as, uh, such as, even though we're depressed, we can still remember God. And I was like, that's good, that's true, but there's something more in those verses. And they looked at it again, and they said, while David is depressed, he's remembering God. And I said, that's good, that's true, but there's still something more. Look at it again. And then Jaden, my oldest, she said, David is praising God because he's depressed. And I was like, ah! The, the angels in heaven were singing, lights were flashing. You know that moment when you're, kid gets it parents look at the text my soul is cast down within me cast down means depressed I am depressed I'm in despair but then there's a therefore therefore meaning for this reason I remember God my friend Jim who lost a child He has said a number of times that he would wish the pain on no one. But what God did to him during that time of despair, what God did to him, he would, he would never want to change. In other words, someone might ask him, or someone might say something like, Jim, it is amazing that after losing a child, all that you've been through, all of this despair and depression... It's amazing, in spite of all of that, that you're praising God. To which Jim would reply, no, I am praising God because of all of that. You see what I'm saying? Despair and depression has the potential, yes, to drive us from God. There is a potential for that, which is why the Bible addresses it. But despair and depression also has the potential to drive you to God. And that's why we're calling this a strange gift. Let's start with another question here. Is it bad to be sad? Is sadness always a bad thing? Meaning, we're in this series right now called A Downcast Soul in Psalm 42 and 43, and we're talking about how not to be in despair. Here's what I don't want to communicate. I don't want to communicate that life is always to be filled with happiness. I don't want to communicate some kind of prosperity gospel like, hey, if you're sad, you know, something's wrong with you. God never wants his people to be sad. I don't want to communicate that. Especially when you look at the scriptures. For instance, Isaiah 66 verse 2 says that God has favor to those who are contrite and humble to those who tremble, which means Christians ought to have a sense of uh, humility and trembling. Malachi chapter 3, verse 14 talks about rebellious Israel. And he says of rebellious Israel that they are a people who believe it's futile to serve God and to go about mourning, which means they believed that life should be filled with, with health, wealth, and prosperity. They believe that life should just be filled uh, with, with eating and drinking and having fun and happiness and never any 
kind of sadness or sorrow. And God called them rebellious. Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus himself is described as one who is oppressed and one who is afflicted. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10 describes Christians as a people who are sorrowful, yet ever rejoicing. Which means that Christians are a people who are always, day and night, good season and bad, rejoicing. We are a joyful people. We should be. I can declare this with an exclamation point. We should be a joyful, a joyful people. Yet we should be also always sorrowful. What does that mean? Well, it means as we look at this world that we live in, this messed up, broken society, as we look at the globe and the challenges we have around the globe, as we look at the United States and the challenges we have in our own country, as we look at Baltimore City and we can just list the challenges, as we look at uh, racism, as we, we, we look at classism, as we look at the disparity between the rich and the like, there's a lot of stuff that should make us sorrowful. As we look at sin and the way that humans rebel against God, even ourselves, redeemed people of God, continuing to sin, there's a sense in which we should always be grieving. We should always have this disposition of uh, uh, godly sorrow. But let's just be clear here. Look, look at verse, look at verse eleven. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Notice he doesn't say, why are you grieving over sin, O my soul? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, no, 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 no. You want to keep that. He doesn't say, why do you have godly sorrow, O my soul? No, you want to keep that. He doesn't say, why are you so contrite, O my soul? No, you want your soul to be contrite. What he says is, why are you cast down, O my soul? Which we talked about last week means forcefully pressed down, better described as depressed, despair. What he's experiencing here is not what we might call godly sorrow, but rather what he's experiencing is sorrow upon sorrow. Wallowing in his sorrow. Eating his tears. This is what we call depression or despair. Which means that we don't want to romanticize this and, 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 and say, well, you know, we, we, should, we should be depressed or we should be in despair. No, we should have sorrow, yet ever rejoicing. Not sorrow minus rejoicing. You see the difference? Now, even with that said, I still want to ask this question. Can God use despair and, and, and depression for your good? Can this still be a strange gift for you? Well, let's just be reminded of what he's going through. First, the psalmist feels abandoned by God. Has anybody ever felt abandoned by God? He feels abandoned by God. And by the way, Jonah, you, you know this, who, Jonah and the what? The fish, the 50% said fish, the other 50% said whale, who's right? If you grew up in Sunday school, you don't know anything, never mind. <laughs> it's a big debate in Sunday school. So Joseph is in the belly of a fish. You know what Joseph, Joseph, Jonah, we do know it was Jonah. Jonah's in the belly of, of the big fish. And um, you know what he's praying? I realized this this week. He's praying Psalm 42. He's praying, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 3, he says, You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. That is a quote, right, from Psalm 42. Your, waker, your, your breakers and your waves, they have gone over me. It's as if Jonah, who grew up, going to the synagogue. He grew up singing Psalm 42 as a child. Now he's stuck in the middle of a fish and he says, oh, I know what that means. <laughs> this is what that means. And Jonah in that moment feels abandoned by God. Cast off. 
left. Why, do, why, do, why, why have you forgotten me? The psalmist asks God. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Not only does he feel abandoned, but he feels accused. Those around him, maybe you wouldn't necessarily call them your enemy. Maybe you would call them your best friend, but sometimes you know how your best friend can say a couple words that kind of clang in your soul, and you would never tell them this, but they have become your enemy. Our best friends can sometimes become and be used as, in our life, as our greatest enemy, right? Or maybe there is, you know, there are enemies. There are people who are, uh, have this malicious attitude toward you, and they do want to harm you, and they do want to tear you down and accuse you, and they do want to point at you when you're down, when you're broke, when everything looks bad around you, and say, where is your God? You say you're a Christian, you're in church every Sunday, you go to Bible study, and this is your life? What is God doing for you? You've been there before, haven't you? For all of us, there is even a deeper level of enemy, and that is at the spiritual world. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan himself is called the accuser of the brethren. Which means Satan sees his role with Christians as accusing you of your sin. Nagging you. Mistakes that you have made in the past. Which Satan is bringing to the forefront of your mind to such a degree that you have developed a self-hatred. Failure of others. And Satan has accused you and said you could have done something more for that individual. Or maybe for a lot of us, it's our own failure. And it's this constant self-condemnation that I could have done better. I, it's, I failed myself. This has led the psalmist to this kind of despair. To being what he calls downcast. Can God use depression for your good? Johnny Erickson Tata, the young girl who was paralyzed, as she lays in the hospital bed, as her story goes on, her friends come by and tap her on the head and try to say encouraging words to her, maybe quote Bible verses. Other friends come along and they try to explain just why God let this happen and they try to figure it all out. She continues to spiral into greater despair and depression. One friend, Steve, comes along. Steve is unique. He doesn't come with just easy rote answers. Steve comes along and just sits next to her. And now she knows that Steve knows a lot about the So she corners Steve and she asks him some, some questions. And Johnny asks Steve, she says, if God is all-powerful, then he could have stopped this. And if God is all-loving, then he would have not allowed this to happen. So I've got a problem. And Steve said, well, let, let me show you an answer for that in the Bible. And she thought, oh, here we go again. She fully expected him to open up the Bible to a proof text. But he, he goes to the story of the crucifixion in the Gospels as well as in, in, in Acts. And he asks Johnny this question. He says, whose will was it that Jesus be crucified? Satan's or God's? And she said, well, both. You see, it was Satan's will. That, from, the, from Satan's perspective, the Messiah was being put to death. Right? From Satan's perspective, he was all about the death of Jesus Christ. But from God's perspective, redemption was happening. And we kind of know the ending and heaven won. Right? Come on, are you guys with me today? Heaven has the ultimate victory. Yet, heaven and hell were simultaneously working together 
as Jesus dies on the cross. Yet, heaven won the ultimate victory. Johnny knew exactly what Steve was saying. He hardly had to say anything else. He turns to Romans 8.28, all right, which is what the song is based off of that we sang this morning. All things work together for good to them who love God. Johnny said to Steve, it sounds like you're saying there that all things are good. And Steve said, no, I'm not saying that all things are good. Like, meaning there's nothing intrinsically good about depression. Now, again, I'm not talking about godly sorrow, mourning over sin, grieving over the state of the world. I'm talking about despair. I'm talking about sorrow upon sorrow. There's nothing intrinsically good about depression and despair, which means we shouldn't romanticize it. We shouldn't desire it. When we're in it, we shouldn't necessarily just want to stay in it. Yet that fits into this promise. It doesn't say all things are good, does it? It says that all things fit into a pattern that works out for the good of the believer in the end. Can good come out of our despair and depression? Since depression fits into Romans 8.28 and we can know with confidence that God will use your despair for your good, let me just encourage you this morning. Do not waste your depression. Do not waste your despair. Let me show you four ways from this text that we can use our depression. Four ways that we might not waste it if, it, if and when it comes, or maybe you're in it right now. Four things that despair and depression can do to us, ways that God can use it for our good. We see it in this text. First, first we, d- depression can cause us to look up. Depression can cause us to look up. So, for example, Jonah. Remember, what's he praying in the belly of the fish? What's he praying? Come on, help me out. Psalm 42. He's praying Psalm 42. And he goes on in chapter 2, verse 7 of Jonah. He says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you. That's the same word that the psalmist is using. I remember you. When my life is fading away in the middle of this fish, in that despair, in that depression, in that state of existence, there I remember you, Lord. And then he says, and my prayer rose to you. What is his, his depression and his despair causing him to do? He's, it's causing him to look up. Because you see, when I am feeling good, I have a tendency to look down on people. But when I am on the bottom, I've got no other place to look than up. Look at the text here. Look at verse 6. There's this contrast of, uh, uh, of places. In verse 6 he says, "Why are you? my soul is cast down. So that's this picture of being pressed, forced all the way to the bottom. Therefore, I remember you. He's remembering God. He's looking up. You see, as soon as we start feeling good, we forget God, don't we? When we're feeling strong, sometimes we forget the the transcendence of God. When we're feeling filled with vibrancy in life, sometimes we start to treat God like a peer. But no, He is pressed down and He remembers all that God is. And he has seen, we've already seen it in verse 2. He has a craving for God. He has a thirst for God. Listen, where does the thirst come from? The thirst comes from the dryness of soul. Where does his dryness come from? It comes from his depression. So because of his depression, he's what? He's thirsting for God. 
What a strange gift that is. What a wonderful place to be to have a thirst for the living God. Depression, what do we get from it? It, it causes us, it can, it can cause us, has the potential of causing us to look up. Secondly, it can turn your values right side up. Depression can turn your values right side up. Going on with my Johnny Erickson Tata story, she says that prior to her accident, she believed that the good life was, I'm quoting her, the good life would be a trim 135, size 12, having a college degree, a house in the suburbs with a white picket fence with Ethan Allen furniture and 2.5 children. But after her accident, she realized that those values which were turned wrong side down were flipped. And no longer did she believe that these things that the world can offer is the good life, but it was all stripped away. And she had to make a decision. Do I live? Do I live? Or die? And if I live, I am going to live for Christ because He's all I have. You see, despair has a strange gift of, of helping us to rightly value things that are around us to flip our, our values. And we see this here. Look at verse 6 again. Where is he remembering him? Let's get into these mountains here. So from the land of Jordan, of Hermon, of Mount Mazar. Now Hermon is a plural word, Hermans. It's, it could be called the Hermans. It's a mountain range outside of Israel. So this psalmist, listen, picture this. He's on the run. He's hiding out. It could be David being chased by Absalom. We don't know. But he's hiding out in the Hermon mountain range from Mount Mazar. That's, that's, that's one mountain peak. This is probably the, the hill that he was living on. What he's saying is, is that from all of these places cast out of the land of Israel, outside of my people, far away from the house of God, dislocated, living in this wilderness, it's from this place that I remember God. Which means, I think his values have been shifted. He doesn't value the white picket fence. He values God. He can find joy in the middle of the, 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 the wilderness. You see, so many of us, we have this mindset of, I will praise God if. Right? I've said that before. When I was in high school, I remember like, all right, God, we're going to work this out. If you get me to the NBA, I will, I'll play a couple years, I'm going to use all the money in the right way, and then I'll give my life to you. God doesn't play that game. <laughs> I will praise you if you get me back to Israel. I'll praise you if you get me back to the, to the house of God. I'll praise you if you reconnect me with my people. I'll praise you if, 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 if. God says, no, I want you to praise me from the wilderness. I want, to pray, I want you to praise me from your despair. I want you to praise me from this place of having no money. I want you to praise me from this place of being in debt. From this place of having no place to go. From this place of having no one to talk to. In this wilderness. This is the place where we reorient our values. And we value the Lord more than what the world offers. What a gift it is. What a gift it is to, to be sick and tired of what the world offers. What a gift it is to no longer thirst after sin. What a gift it is to no longer thirst after material things. What a gift it is to thirst after the living God. Thirdly, depression can ignite your worship. It can cause you to look up. 
It can turn your values right side up. And depression can ignite your worship. Right at the center of these two psalms, sort of uh, if you could picture a wedge, right at the point of that wedge where all the weight is found, right at the center we see verse 8. It's the direct center. And I think it's there, you remember this is poetry. I think it's at the center for a purpose. Let me read to you verse 8. He says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. That sounds like worship, doesn't it? In the center of this despair that he is facing, depression in him is igniting worship day and night. So by day, now the Lord, that word the Lord right there is the the word Y-H-W-H. Yahweh, which is the personal name for God. It's the only place that God's personal name is used in this psalm. What he's saying is is that I, in this place of wilderness, in this despair, I have this intimate, personal, covenantal relationship with the Almighty God. And not only can I call to Him, but it says He commands His steadfast love. So all day long, I picture the psalmist just sitting back and meditating on the fact that God is in command of His steadfast love. Just as God commands the ocean, just as God commands the weather, just as God commands the skies above, He commands His love. And it's not just any love, but it's a steadfast kind of love. Which means that God's love, if He commands it to be centered on and placed on the psalmist, it will never leave. He, meaning, he's trusting God's love. He's trusting Him all day long. And then at night, I love the next line. What's he doing at night? Now, nighttime in the, in the ancient world was a scary place to be, especially if you're in the mountains, in the wilderness. At nighttime, city lights, nowhere to be found. All right? You can't pull your iPhone out and turn the flashlight on. During the night is when the robbers would come through. During the night is when wolves would come through and scavengers. I picture this psalmist, wide awake, sleepless, sleepless, depressed soul, wide awake at 2 a.m. And what's he doing? Look at what he says, at night his song is with me. He's singing. He's singing. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Maybe he's singing that. God is intentional. Maybe he's singing Travis Green. He's singing in the middle of the night. I imagine the devil Freaking out at this point. I have brought this psalmist out here to destroy him with despair and depression. Everything in his life has turned upside down on his head, and he can be in no worse of a state. And the devil is like, what's he doing? God is intentional. What? <laughs> He's singing. I imagine all of the empire of darkness freaking out in this moment as they realize that, that the, the stuff that was meant for this guy's discouragement, despair, brokenness, and destruction has been used by God for his strengthening. All things work together for good. In the midst of his despair, worship has been ignited in his soul. And lastly, number four, depression can create a longing for heaven. Depression causes us to look up. Depression causes us to turn our values right side up. Depression ignites our worship. And depression can create a longing for heaven. Let me show you where I see that in the text. In 40, chapter 42, verse 2, he says, My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. And he says, when shall I come and appear before God? 
I think there's something this-worldly about that question, and I think there's something eschatological about that question. There's something bigger and broader than this world. When, when, like, what are we longing for? I remember when I was first struggling with depression in my 20s, for the first time I was like, man, I want to just go to a monastery. I want to go to a big monastery and just sit in a monastery. Why did I want to go to a monastery? I never thought about going to a monastery. I think what I was longing for something more. You see what I'm saying? What I was longing for was peace, quiet, uh, away from the troubles of the world and sin. The problem is, is in monasteries, you find all of that other stuff, right? We can't create heaven on earth. What's he desiring? What's he longing for? I think what he's longing for is forever with God. We see it again in chapter 43, verse 3. He says, let them, your light and truth, bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Yes, the temple, but what does the temple represent? It represents the world that is to come. It creates, depression can create in us a sense of longing for heaven. Turn to Romans 8.28 with me. If you're new to the Bibles, you can look in the, uh, the front. You can find the page number. It's in the New Testament. Romans 8.28. So Romans 8.28 I think is often misunderstood. Romans 8.28, it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. This is how we typically apply that. Something's going bad in our life and then we try to figure out in the here and now how this is going to work out for good. And so I've counseled with folks who have been through trauma and they've been through depression and despair and they're, and, and they're saying, you know, I've been going through this and I don't see how it's working out for my good. Meaning, my bank account isn't any fuller, my kids aren't performing any better, I haven't got a promotion at work like I thought, it, you see what I'm saying? Like we have a, this worldly kind of mentality when we go into that verse. But look at the text itself. In Romans 8.28 it goes on and he says, whom those he predestined he also called. Whom those he called he also justified. Whom those he justified. I'm in verse 30 by the way. He, whom those he justified he also what? Glorified. Is, that, is glorified. Is that language of heaven or earth? Well, it's a trick question. It's a language of heaven crashing to earth. It's a language of the kingdom that is to come. But it's not language of, uh, of this current age that we live in. What, what I'm saying here is this, is Romans 8.28 is tied to those next two verses. Those next two verse, verses are an unbreakable chain of how a sinner is saved and eventually glorified in God's kingdom forever and ever. And Romans 8.28 is saying there's nothing that's going to happen in your life that is not intentionally there so that you might remain on that unbreakable chain so that you might one day be glorified. Means Roman, Romans 8.28 is heavenward, not earthward. It's, uh, it has a future hope and a future reality as opposed to a, this kind of reality meaning are you guys tracking with me going back now to psalm 42 what i think is happening here is he's recognizing and he's welling up all of these desires this longing for heaven because he is so broken because he's feeling the weakness of the earth because he's downcast and in the same way for us, as we are depressed and in despair, we have to stop and recognize that all things work together for our good to get us home. And so we need to stop trying to figure out how all of these things work out for good in the here and now, and we need to start longing for heaven, for the world that is to come when racism will be no more, when sickness will be no more, when despair will be no more, when poverty and brokenness will be no more. Are you longing? Are you longing for heaven? It 
It's a strange gift, isn't it? Depression causes us to lean into Christ in a way that we otherwise wouldn't. Despair can cause us to cling to Christ in a way that we otherwise wouldn't. To recognize that He is my rock. He is my firm foundation. In verse 9, He calls God His rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Look to Christ. Look to Christ, those of you who are in despair. Look to Christ. And as you look to Christ, you won't necessarily find all of your troubles just taken away. But you will find the despair begin to lift. Because now we have sorrowful, yes, but ever joyful. Look to Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53... I'm going to read you a couple verses. We see Christ here. And notice as I read this, notice the ours and the we's in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. Surely He took up our pain. Everybody say our. Our pain. And He bore our suffering. Yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. No God, lowercase g, God, no God was ever wounded but this God. This God whom the psalmist is crying out to, is a God who came into the world and was wounded, was afflicted. But it wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't because of brokenness that he's created. It's brokenness that humanity has created. It's our sin that afflicted him. This God came and was wounded for me, which means he took my wounds. He took my pain. He took my despair. He took my depression. And as He hung on the cross, He took it all. And not only that, but He took the the divine punishment for my sin and it crushed Him and buried Him and He now lay in the ground. But He didn't stay dead. Three days later, this wounded Messiah rose from the dead. Victorious over sin. Victorious over the grave. This is why we can call Him our rock. From the other side of pain, from the other side of depression and affliction and despair, He looks at you and He says, come to Me. Come to Me. Build your house on Me. Stand firm on Me because I am the solid rock. Are you drawn to Christ? In your weakness, do you recognize that He is strong? Does your despair and your depression drive you to Christ? Family, cling to Christ. There is no other foundation on which you can build your life. There is no circumstance that can temporarily, yes, fix your despair and depression, but ultimately keep you. Only Christ can keep you. Turn to Christ and find life. Turn to Christ and find hope in the midst of despair. Turn to Christ and find the light of the world. And what you'll discover is that He'll turn you into a light for the world. I know, oh, what are we going to do? Hide our light? No, we let our light shine so that the world might see the hope of Jesus Christ. Friends, Christians who are battling with despair and discouragement can be such a wonderful witness in this fallen world. Let your light shine before men. Kathy Keller, she once said this. She said, how you respond to the darkness in your life will go a long way toward whether or not you 
ever, ever develop courage, develop patience, develop compassion, develop sobriety and humility, ever develop any of those things. And then she said this, don't waste your sorrows. How are you going to deal with your sorrows? How are you going to deal with your despair and your, de your depression? Are you going to let them drive you from Christ, your only hope? What are you going to do? Don't waste your depression. Let it drive you to Christ. I sent a, a word out to some friends and I said, hey, does anybody have any stories of how God has used despair and depression in your life for your good? And the stories came flooding in. One friend of mine, his name is Tom. Tom has a son with autism. As his son has grown into a man, he's become stronger and bigger. His son, uh, through the uh, self-inflicted injuries, as well as becoming more and more aggressive toward Tom and his wife, that situation has brought a lot of despair. Challenges. Days that are very dark. Yet Tom wrote this. He says, though it's been brutally hard and extremely, an extremely painful journey, God has used this to pull me closer to Him. Another sister who has invested so much time into other people, she has found her despair come not so much from her own fail failures, but watching other people fail. People that she's invested in. People that she's uh, loved. People that she's reached out to and walked with and cried with. She talked about this one situation where a couple that she loved and cared for, uh, was th their marriage was just spiraling and, and, and she could see it and her husband could see it. It was so clear, but they were just completely blind to it. And they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't take any advice. And then eventually their marriage ended in divorce, which left my friend in despair. I could have done more. I didn't do something right. Like all of the accusations, whether it's from the devil or from self, were being inflicted upon her. She cried out to the Lord and said, what do you want me to do? She wrote this. She said, the answers didn't come immediately, but a resolve did. The Lord quickly fixed my heart on Him, healed my scars, and gave me hope. My friend Sarah, a heart-wrenching story of a marriage seven years in, adopting a child, foster child in their home. Her husband decides one day to leave and to begin a physical affair with a woman he's been having an emotional affair with. He left her and the foster child behind, and she fell into deep despair. She left church for seven years. She saw as the news as he got married to, someone, to, to this lover, and her despair just continued to grab a hold of her throat. She would ask God questions such as, why would you bring us this far and then let us fall apart? And she said at some point, at the very bottom of her despair, this truth was pressed upon her that God is a jealous God and that God wants all of her life. She felt that God called her to stand for her marriage that has forever been broken. And to do that through praying for her ex-husband. She was at that bottom of despair reunited with the Lord. And she wrote this, listen to this. She said, if the only good that comes from this is that God brought me back to Him, I would do it again in a heartbeat. If the only good that comes out of this is that God brought me to Him, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Friends, could you say that? If the only good that comes out of this darkness is that God brought me to Him, it's worth it. If the only good of this despair and depression that I'm facing is that God brought me to my knees and reunited me with Him, isn't it worth it? 
Despair and depression can be a strange gift. What do you get? It causes you to look up, to turn your values right side up, to ignite worship, and to long for heaven. Listen, friends, let me close with this statement. God works all of your depression in all circumstances among all believers for our good and for His glory. Therefore, don't waste your depression. We might have been proud. We might have been arrogant, feeling too good about ourselves. And so he put a thorn in our side so that we might cling to him. We might have walked away and forgot him, so he touched our hip and dislocated it, and now we walk with a limp for the rest of our life so that we might know that when we are weak, he is strong. He is the solid rock on which we stand. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. For I again shall praise Him. Family, it is my prayer that we would all, during dark seasons, pray with the psalmist and believe with the psalmist. My soul is downcast. Therefore, I remember Him. I don't praise God in spite of what I've gone through. But may we say, I praise God because of what I've gone through. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this word from Psalm 42. We pray that anyone in this room who is struggling deeply with despair and depression would look to Christ, would look to You, and would find that their hope is not in anything that the world can offer them, but that their hope is in You. And I pray, God, that as we are crushed to, to the bottom, as, as we feel like there's, uh, we, we've hit uh, the, the worst that we can hit, uh, nothing seems to be working for us. I pray that in that kind of despair that we, that we will not be driven from You, but that we will be driven to You. I pray that we will look up and that we will see You and remember You. I pray that our values would be turned right side up. I pray that worship would be ignited in our souls. And I pray, God, that we would long for that day when heaven crashes to earth, when our bodies are made new, we're glorified, sin is forever done away with, and we live forever with You in this kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.